bestseller list, he felt like a king. He was on top of the world. And then this happened. This is, I'm now quoting him. After the tour, I went to a friend's house at a famous ski resort in Utah for a weekend, a half-million-dollar house with timbered ceilings and high windows with views of snow peaks and tall pines. And here, alone, on a chill March afternoon, I discovered what it's like to be on the bottom. A simple tale. After lunch, I took off all my clothes and went out to the hot tub, and the door closed behind me, and it locked. I sat in the hot tub for an hour or so, thinking that Santa might drop in, or the Lone Ranger, or St. Jude, and when they didn't, I wrapped myself in a blue plastic tarp off the woodpile and trudged barefoot down the road, gravel, and knocked on doors and pleaded for help. A naked man wrapped in blue plastic does not win friends easily. (laughs) I knocked on the doors of five homes with lights on and cars in the driveway, and nobody showed his face. What Mark Twain said is true. Clothes make the man. (laughs) Naked people have little or no influence on society. I waved in an urgent way to three men driving by in a pickup, and they managed not to make eye contact and drove on. At the fifth house, a woman came to the door and opened it just a crack. She agreed to call my friend's house. She didn't invite me in, though I was shivering, or offered tea or a lift back to the hot tub house. I had been schmoozing on national TV the week before, and now I was a pariah in Utah. I hiked a half mile back to the hot tub and was rescued an hour later, and that was the parable of the naked man in the blue plastic. The moral is, have mercy when you're riding high. Things have a way of changing suddenly. Ever since then, I have braked for the naked. So when was the last time you were stranded, naked, wrapped only in a blue plastic tarp? Maybe life so far has spared you Garrison Keillor's experience of naked exposure and the time it takes to lock a door. Or maybe you too have known what it's like to be on the outside, to feel like a stranger. One minute you're acceptable, maybe even glorified, the next minute you're nothing. We live so much of our time with our very selves divided. There's the outward self, the onstage smiling self that goes out to greet the world each day, glad-handing our neighbors, holding down a competent job, holding it together often with great skill and apparent ease, the self that is concerned and needs to be with image, influence, and impact. It's our face to the world. And then there's the inward self, the backstage self, the part of you that lives its life not in accomplishment or looks or being on top, but in intuition, insight, feelings, and values. 
Fairly on, when we're children, we begin to build those protective coverings between our inner truth and our outward personality. Some of us earlier than others, some of us with more urgent necessity. We begin not to trust the voice within us as readily as the distractions without. We trust approval and disapproval more than our own hearts. And we learn to protect ourselves, to protect that vulnerable inward self by hiding it or pretending that it isn't even there. We love Halloween with its costumes and masks. From the wild animals to superheroes to aliens and marshmallows. The masks are as varied as the human imagination. And there's something about putting on a mask that actually changes who we are. Sometimes it's easier to picture those protective coverings I've been talking about as masks. But not just on Halloween. We walk through life wearing masks. And some of those masks have value. They serve as subconscious defenders protecting our inner integrity. But some of those masks, it turns out, never come off, but are only stitched tighter and reinforced every year, every day, as we respond as, we respond as best we know to disapproval or exclusion or humiliation or fear. It's easier to not engage with each other beyond a simple cordiality, a cordiality that is not necessarily shallow, but a rational structure to protect the heart. The other masks that we can so carefully construct are not so benign. They don't protect us. They hide aspects of ourselves and leave us pretending to be somebody that we aren't. We hide behind the mask of competence. We hide behind the mask of invulnerability. We hide behind the mask of busyness. We hide behind our things, our professions, our roles, our relationships, our intelligence, our histories, our stories, and yes, our clothing. Some of us hide behind our masks quietly by slithering from one place to another, by not speaking too much or certainly not too loudly, by avoiding looking into another's eyes by spending a whole lot of time alone. Some of us hide loudly by making sure we're noticed through incessant talking or dominating every conversation or through sarcasm or incessant perkiness meant to convey that we are in total control. And then at some time or another, maybe because of a crisis or because we've let our hearts be opened or through maturing wisdom, or simply through a longing for integrity, we decide to reimagine the masks we've erected between the way we present ourselves to the world, which may have become smaller and more restricted over time, and our inner world that longs to take up more space, to take risks, to grow. We want to know who we are and where we stand. We want to demonstrate our convictions with actions, not just explanation. And so into this vortex of inner and outer, of carefully guarded appearances and inner truth, the ethical culture community holds forth the possibility of transformation. 
Here we are challenged to live with integrity and authenticity. Here we strive to hold mirrors up to each other so that we might see reflected back our truest and best selves. We come to our societies for all sorts of reasons, but among those reasons, always, underneath, is some longing to know others, to encounter them deeply and deeply to be known, to drop the facades and masks and labels and roles and unrealistic expectations and say, hi, I'm me. I'm who I am. We long to find a place where we won't be judged and analyzed and published, a place where we can ask the deeper question, who do I and who do we together really want to be, all within the context of a trusted, loving, and safe community? Sometimes I think that our ethical societies have no greater purpose than to provide hospitality, not only to the intellect, to our conscience, not only to the social animal that is in us, not only to the heart, but the deepest, most authentic part of you, of me, the part that Dr. Felix Adler, the founder of Ethical Culture, would call the soul. It seems this would be obvious, but it's easy to forget. The truth is, we welcome each person here, whoever you are, whatever your gifts or apparent accomplishments, whatever your needs or your dearest hopes. To have the real relationships that we seek, to truly be loved and to love, we must be able to remove the masks we wear, the coverings, and speak from the center of our being, communicate honestly and listen caringly to the words beneath the words that are spoken. There comes a moment when nothing matters more than authenticity, and you become aware that despite all the fear or risks of exposure, your unguarded, vulnerable, honest, open self has discovered a warm welcome here. However you are, here or at Noves or at Bess, let yourself shine. Whatever you choose as meaningful and good and true to you, go after it with all your heart. And when you do, you will empower others to do the same. And that, my wonderful friends, is wearing our Sunday best. No longer. The image I love the best when I hear the phrase putting on my Sunday best is this. Proud, powerful women strutting their stuff in the walkway to their church, wearing huge, colorful, stylish, fancy hats. It's an image you can see in this neighborhood or in this city on any given Sunday, and it's an image that captivated two friends, a photographer and a journalist. Michael Cunningham and Craig Marbury, inspired them to write a book that inspired Regina Taylor to write a stage play of the same name, Crowns. 
Crowns is a loving homage to a cherished custom that fuses faith and fashion. Taylor said he wasn't surprised that black women once denied the right even to enter segregated fashion stores would choose to start wearing fancy hats. These crowns, adorned with ribbons and bows, declared, no more. No more am I going to stay in the background. No more am I going to hide. And no more am I going to hide my faith. This tradition, of course, is set in the context of American culture. The power of these hats is wrapped up in the personal dignity of the wearers. This is a dignity that flourishes despite centuries of racial dehumanization. And I marvel at the mixture of survival, strength, and style. In the words of James Baldwin, our crowns have already been bought and paid for. All we have to do is wear them, and they wear them well. Now, independent of American history, hat-wearing has had a place in many religions around the world. Gail Lowe, who created Smithsonian exhibit on African-American faith, said that in the pre-civil rights days, the hat-wearing tradition was primarily a way for people to honor God and respect the church. The photographer of crowns, Craig Marbury, said that hat-wearing was part of a tradition that went way back into African tradition, where it said that when one presents oneself to God, you should be at your best. You should present excellence in the face of the Almighty. Now, there's an odd juxtaposition, in my mind, the overlap of an all-powerful, mysterious force at the heart of theism and hats. Bonnets and berets, chapeaus and sombreros. It certainly seemed odd to one of my favorite social critics, George Carlin. He pondered, what is this religious fascination with headgear? Every religion has a different effing hat. Did you ever notice that? The Hindus have a turban, the Sikhs have a tall white turban, the Jews have a yarmulke, the Muslims have a kafiyah, the bishops have a pointy hat one day and a round hat the next day, the cardinal has a red hat, the pope has a white hat, everyone has a different effing hat. One group takes them off, the other group puts them on. He concludes, personally, I would never want to be a member of any group where you either have to wear a hat or you can't wear a hat. I think that all religions should have one rule and one rule only. Hats optional. That's all you need to run a really good religion. Well, it takes more than that. It takes a lot of hard work. It certainly takes a sense of humor. And it takes a respect for people that are different than us, even if we don't understand their customs. But certainly in ethical culture, hats are optional. That's part of our free-thinking, skeptical heritage and our deep respect for the uniqueness of every individual. It demands that hats are optional. We don't wear fancy hats much. There's one ethical culturist who did make a wonderful show of her hats. Anybody who knew Rose Walker knows that she walked the halls of the UN in New York, whose hats were as big as her heart, and she died last year at 101 years old. At the AU assembly last year, right after she died, the collection was put in two large straw hats, half of it going to the Rose L. Walker Fund. But despite Rose and despite the fun of wearing fancy hats, I am not going to suggest we appropriate this tradition. But I do suggest we appropriate some of what's behind the hat wearing. 
And that's the pride and the joy and the power of being yourself and declaring so to the world. Ethical culture should stop hiding its faith. We should express, dare I say it, some of this attitude. Now, on the surface, it's not always easy for ethical cultures to do this. Our heritage is more sedate than showy, and uh, Felix Adler's personality is more austere than ostentatious. And our rationalist tradition that I think we should build on and support has in the past been defined a little too narrowly. Maybe it's one reason why ethical culture is a bit in the background in the humanist landscape in this country, and I think that needs to change. So maybe metaphorically, at least, we should step forward and put some fancy hats on our intellectual heads. We've already done so in many ways. All around the movement, I see more music, more poetry, more color, more fun, more candle lighting. We're doing better at using all of ourselves, our head and our heart and our hands. This will help us flourish as a diverse community as we build our future while honoring our past. So don't let coming to Sunday Platform become mundane for you. Don't let it become just another routine. Coming to an ethical society, like wearing a fancy hat, takes commitment. And coming and making it deeply meaningful for you and everybody here takes commitment. So make your Sunday morning a declaration of your dedication to ethical ideals and to bringing out your best and the best of others. So strut your stuff now and then, and metaphorically perhaps, wear your crown with joy and pride and commitment. Now maybe Felix Adler didn't wear a fancy hat on his bald little head, but in his own way he strut his stuff. He proclaimed every Sunday the ideals of ethical culture. With eloquence and energy, he treated every platform as the fire that burns upon the altar of ethical culture. He proclaimed his faith in an ethical and supreme way of being. Let's do the same, each in our own way, with our own style. Let's share with the world, dressed in our best, this wonderful way of living called ethical culture. Thank you. I'm not, I'm not sure I remember clearly when I last wore white gloves. I suspect it was for graduation from junior high school. My mother thought I should be a lady for that occasion. Wearing white gloves to her signified being a lady. Not that she ever wore them that I can remember. It seemed like part of a costume. Not really me. Not even just dressed up, but pretending to be something beyond what I was. By the time I got to senior high, white gloves were really out. It was the 1960s, after all. With the feminist movement, being a woman seemed to be much more important than being a lady. White gloves seemed to symbolize staying out of controversy, not being engaged. Handling a situation with kid gloves, being so gentle and careful that you don't take risks. 
To people in the medical profession, wearing gloves means something a bit different than being a lady, but it still means avoiding risks and being careful. The technical term for putting on the gloves is contact isolation. I remember in the middle of the anthrax scare some 10 years ago, we here were urged to put on gloves to open our own mail. Again, avoid risks, avoid contact, be careful. I suspect that many of the women in the very first ethical societies wore white gloves for special occasions, perhaps even to Sunday platforms. I don't, would you raise your hand if you're wearing white gloves today? (laughs) I don't see many doing so. We've taken off the gloves, and I say good riddance to them. Wearing white gloves is about contact isolation. An ethical culture at its best is about contact, engaging with people, engaging with issues, engaging with action. The white glove may look attractive, but take a look for a minute at your own very human hand. Every hand is unique, marked with lines and fingerprints inherited or earned by experience. Our hands are marked by our histories and our activities. Take a look at your very own human hand. Touch it with your other hand. How clearly our hands are instruments of feeling, allowing us to literally stay in touch with the world outside. Thumbs to help us grab on, fingers that can play a piano, a guitar, Hold a baby's bottle, brush a child's skin, hold hands with a lover or a friend, climb a tree, wash dishes, muck around in the mud, eat chocolate cake with gooey chocolate frosting. Our hands are important to keep us in touch with the world, keep us engaged with the world. They're one of our primary sensory instruments for exploring the world, discovering the world. Who'd want to put gloves on them, really? Might as well put blinders on and lose our sight. A friend who grew up in a very traditional religion um, describes going to church as a child wearing white gloves every Sunday. Why? She She was told it was a reminder not to clap because the music at church was for God, not for the people. But in ethical culture... It's all for the people, for the human community here and beyond us. Who'd want to put gloves on and forget that? Might as well put earplugs in and lose our hearing. A poem by Martin Espada describes the value of barehanded work. He wrote, At 16, I worked after high school hours at a printing plant that manufactured legal pads. Yellow paper stacked seven feet high and leaning as I slipped cardboard between the pages, then brushed red glue up and down the stack. No gloves, fingertips required for the perfection of paper, smoothing the exact rectangle. Sluggish by 9 p.m., the hands would slide along suddenly sharp paper and gather slits thinner than the crevices of the skin hidden. Then the glue would sting, hands oozing till both palms burned at the punch clock. Ten years later, in law school, 
I knew that every legal pad was glued with a sting of hidden cuts, that every open law book was a pair of hands upturned and burning. Wearing white gloves, especially to church, symbolizes a kind of separation from what is real and a kind of superficial niceness. A teacher I studied with um, regularly said that the um, greatest sin of humanism and liberal religion is niceness. Instead of confronting, instead of really engaging, we tend to be nice. I don't believe that bringing out the best means letting others do whatever they want to do, even when it hurts others or is destructive of community. When people are being hurt, I want us to take off our gloves, take a stand, and do the real work of making change. Being ethical is not about keeping our hands clean and isolated. It's not about being dainty and pretentious. It's also not about putting on another kind of gloves, boxing gloves. Confrontation doesn't need to mean fighting it out, battling, arguing, whether physical or verbal. Boxing gloves are another kind of contact isolation. We wear boxing gloves to protect us, to keep our hands safe. In ethical confrontation, we need to be in touch and engaged. But that does not require hitting or fighting. When people are hurting, they need a hand, and not one that is covered by a fancy white glove and not one that is covered with a boxing glove. Yes, in wintertime, gloves are essential outside. But inside, in the warmth of community, we can take off the gloves. You may need to put on a glove for special occasions, like if you play outfield. But after the game's over, be real, take off the glove. Before our first ethical society was founded, the American author Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote, a pure hand needs no glove to cover it. Ethics does not require wearing gloves. Ethics means we need to take off the gloves. If you want to hold infinity in the palm of your hands, take off the gloves. Engage. Be in the mess. Be every day. Be real. Be willing to risk. Be in touch. Take off the gloves. think a lot about what to wear on Sunday morning. Mary and I both do, actually, especially since we have an uncanny habit of inadvertently wearing matching outfits. We never planned that, but once it was so bad. Black skirts, black heels, white shirts, lime green jackets. I mean, what are the chances? <laughs> that we had to say something during announcements, lest people think we were instituting a new liturgical uniform for ethical <laughs> culture leaders. Not to worry, we just like the same clothes, apparently. And actually, now I'm beginning to wonder if it isn't in the water here at West. We did not plan our color scheme. <laughs> But even with the amazing matching leaders aside, it's still tricky to get dressed for Sunday morning. I want to be dressy, but not so dressy that you all will wonder which service it is that I'm going to. 
elegant but comfortable enough to crouch down and talk to one of our children. Sometimes I try to wear a pin that ties into the theme of the service, although I'm afraid that the connection is usually so subtle that I'm the only one who notices. (laughs) The hardest Sunday morning I ever had to dress for was a couple of years ago. Wes wanted to participate as a congregation in the National Equality March down on the Mall for LGBTQ equality. And we were dismayed to find out that in order to do so, we would have to line up down near DuPont Circle starting around 1130 in the morning. How could we have platform service and be in the march too? And how would we get down there in the first place? I had visions of caravans of West cars circling DuPont Circle for hours looking for parking. And they'd be late anyway since they'd be coming after platform. It was never going to work We couldn't possibly have our platform service and participate in the march, too. Then somebody remembered that our religious tradition has something to say about participation in marches. Or rather, about participation in life, in action, in justice work, in changing the world. Here's a hint. It wasn't that we shouldn't bother because the parking will be inconvenient. (laughs) One of ethical culture's catchphrases is deed before creed. It actually comes from the founding address, delivered in 1876 by a very young Felix Adler. And the original phrase is, diversity in creed, unanimity in deed. In other words, we can think and believe differently from each other, but the thing we have to agree on, the real point that we gather together, is so that we can act together. That Sunday, a few years ago, we decided to hold a five-minute platform service for everyone, and then, while some folks remained to participate in a colloquy or a small circle gathering, the rest of us caught buses down 16th Street to our lineup location, where we marched and cheered and waved rainbow flags and lost each other in the chaos and found each other again at the White House. And my fashion dilemma that day? Well, it's always hard to find an outfit that makes one look like a religious authority figure and a spirited protester. Although, if anyone could combine those two personas, surely it would be us. I think I settled on a West t-shirt over in Oxford with khaki pants. But the most important thing I wore that day were my sneakers. Comfortable enough to see me down to the White House with plenty of jumping up and down during the chants, too. Of course, sneakers aren't always the right choice. They'd look a little odd with this outfit, for instance. An ethical life, a life wisely lived, has all kinds of shoe needs in it. Sneakers for marches, sandals for potluck lunches on hot days, dress shoes for meeting with your senator, even those cool finger-toe shoes, you know, for whatever reason people wear those shoes. Bob is here. He might be wearing those shoes. Yes. Do you have them on? Not today. Part of wisdom is knowing which shoes to wear when. And another part is welcoming everyone despite and because of the shoes they wear. We see all kinds of shoes on a Sunday morning here. Birkenstocks and pumps, fancy shoes and not-so-fancy shoes, the occasional cowboy boot, and a lot of little soft shoes for the babies. They're all welcome here, that diversity of shoes just like the diversity of creed that Felix Adler welcomed in his founding address. Ethical culture was built 
on the idea of many kinds of shoes. Or anyway, I'm sure Felix meant something like that. (laughs) The point is, though, you do need something on your feet. And that's my message this morning. As you take off your coverings and put on your hats and take off your gloves, for heaven's sake, or better yet, for goodness sake, don't forget your shoes. Don't forget that the core of this religious tradition is our commitment to action in the world. I love our Sunday gatherings. I would have picked an odd profession if I didn't. And they are so important to me, important in the way they ground me and center me and prepare me for the week ahead and the work ahead. But I can't ever forget that there is work ahead and that once I'm fully centered, I better tighten up my laces and start marching. Thank you.